This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, and welcome to Monday's Twilight Show again with me, Rebecca Ricketts, live from Dubai. Tonight, I am thrilled to be joined by British School Middle East newly appointed CEO, Deborah Forsyth. Deborah and I will be talking about leadership and the British curriculum being at the forefront of the international education system. Join in the discussion by calling or texting in. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, hello <laughs> to round two of me trying to do tonight's Monday Twilight Show. Um, if you were here with me for the first 15 minutes, you will realize that I have had all of the technical mishaps that have never, ever happened to me before, but they all decided to happen in one fell swoop of the show. Um, first of all, um, Rebecca Barry, thank you so much for joining. Oh, and my mum's back as well. So thank you so much. So hopefully we will be able to actually have this conversation now before in my previous introduction, which nobody will ever have to hear me trying to kind of get my way through those news and the ads ever again. I will not be publishing that one as a podcast, podcast fail. Um, I was talking about Deborah Forsyth. Now, Deborah is the newly appointed CEO of the British Schools Middle East, but she is also the reason why I'm living and working in Dubai because Deborah interviewed me for my first teaching job four and a half years ago now um, to work for her, with her, um, at the school that I was working at before I moved in September. And so Deborah has been working as a principal for many, many, many years and she is now taking on a new role, taking on a new challenge, just as all of us who have to that worked in our previous school, but she is going to be working as the CEO for British Schools Middle East, uh, which is an organisation that supports teachers, supports schools, implements systems and quality assurance um, for schools that work in the Middle East. So it's going to be great to speak to Deborah today about her leadership and the roles that she has. Now, do you know what? I think what was ironic about all of this is here I am telling you what an absolutely amazing day I've had. My students smashing it at the World Scholars Cup, me smashing it and winning an award. And then here I am. I can't even get my radio show, which I've managed every single week without fail, to work without there being some kind of technical difficulty. And so I'm sat here now Kind of nervous to try and play the news and the ads, but I'm going to go with it again and hopefully you will be able to hear them. If you can't hear the news and the ads, please just write in the chat um, and then I can just flap a little bit more and try and make something work. <laughs> but if you could please let me know if you can't hear them and we will take it from there. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. 
They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalized education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. SteveWoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit SteveWoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half term and join me for two days and receive up to 1,360 pounds in bursary terms and conditions apply find out more at stevewoods.co.uk here at with a slack group we are celebrating the launch of our new luxborough court school in chickwell essex with a very special one day autism conference titled enabling inspirational education Taking place on Wednesday the 29th of June from 10am at Luxborough Court School, our event is dedicated to providing practical advice to education professionals working with neurodiverse children and young people. The event is free to attend and presentations on the day will focus on creating cultures of aspiration and excellence, supporting the emotional well-being of pupils, autism-friendly classrooms and managing challenging behaviour. So, whether you're looking to add to your extensive understanding or are new to SEN and wanting to build your knowledge, our conference will offer an amazing opportunity to engage with experts and network with colleagues from across the sector. Don't miss your chance to claim your free ticket and we hope you can join us for what's sure to be a fantastic day. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash events to register or contact events at withaslackgroup.co.uk for more information. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In England, the Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, has written about his determination that all pupils should get a world-leading music education in her schools. He said, music is one of the greatest joys in life. Whether you prefer to listen through your headphones to help you concentrate in the gym, or you spend your weekends discovering hidden gems at loud underground gigs, music has a transformative ability to bring people together. This country has a rich musical culture. Paul McCartney is headlining Glastonbury this weekend and the Rolling Stones are playing Hyde Park, 60 years after their first gig. These icons continue to thrill us all 
and the Glastonbury lineup is full of incredible young British talent. I am, I am determined to uphold that by investing in music education for the next generation. It is vital that all children have access to these opportunities to ensure that music education is not reserved for the privileged few. To enable this, I am continuing our Music Hubs programme worth £79 million per year, so schools can continue to access local specialist support to deliver exciting music lessons that help all children develop a love of music. There is an additional £25 million to boost stocks of musical instruments. It has been widely reported that Prince Charles has called for the history of trafficking by slave traders of African people to be taught as widely as the Holocaust in Britain. The Prince of Wales told Commonwealth leaders that the potential of the family of nations for good cannot be realised until we acknowledge the wrongs which have shaped our past. Prince Charles described how he was on a personal journey of discovery and was continuing to deepen his own understanding of slavery's enduring impact. A royal source told the Sunday Telegraph that Charles had noted that at a national level we know and learn at school all about the Holocaust. That is not true of the transatlantic slave trade. The source continued, adding, there's an acknowledgement that it needs to happen. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello! Last week, I spotted a tweet from Nathan Ginn. Some of you may know him from his Twilight Tuesday show here on TT Radio, others as at Nathan Lesson Copy. He tweeted, It's that part of the school year where it's uncomfortably hot at school and raining at the weekend. He's proven correct in most parts of the country for the past couple of weeks. The question this week is not, has Nathan jinxed us like Rihanna's umbrella song, but can tech keep us cool in the classroom? So let's see if we can find out some gadgets to make baking in a boiling room with 30 kids cooler. Please note, I'll only be looking at personal devices, not commercial cooling units. First up, if you have a spare 20 to 30 pounds and don't mind looking like you're about to enter a mini gurning competition, then perhaps a portable neck fan is for you. It looks like you're wearing junky headphones around your neck and depending on speed settings can give you a light breeze to hear a wind that will stand your hair on end for up to 21 hours. Driving away heat from your neck and face, USB rechargeable, this may be the answer for any hot-headed teachers out there. Next up, a portable evaporative air cooling fan. Again, depending on size, you're looking at 15 to 40 pounds. This works on having a small reservoir of water and a blind-like material soaking it up inside. Air passes over the water and gives a cool breeze when you're sitting in front of it. Having had one of these, I can say they do work, but the downside is people just can't look with their eyes. Inevitably, 
people will come to your desk, ask what it is, and pick it up, covering themselves, you, and possibly your computer in water. Also, if left over the summer without drying it out, it will go a little green and need disposing of to reduce the risk of spreading Legionnaire's disease around your classroom. If on a tighter budget, a USB desk fan can't fail. Before you start pointing out that USBs are deactivated in your school, the data transfer may be, but the power will not, so you'll still be able to power and charge devices over USB. Some come with docking stations, making them more portable, others are wired. From five to 20 pounds, these are more pocket friendly and also less hassle. So if you're in need of a breeze as you wind up the year, tech can come to your rescue. Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us how you stay cool or ask me what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So hello and welcome back to Monday's Twilight Show with me, Rebecca Ricketts, coming to you live from Dubai after the worst technical hitch of my Teachers Talk Radio career, um, which <laughs> I can't even say I dealt with in a calm, collected manner. It definitely was not. But we are here and I am super excited to finally, after all of that, welcome officially to the show, Deborah Forsyth. So Deborah, please tell me you can hear me. I can hear you loud and clear, Rebecca, and I'm delighted to be with you. And there she is. Hi, Deborah. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I am so excited for this interview. You've got no idea. I'm going to get <laughs> such a pleasure. I'm going to get straight into it though because I've seemed to waste so much time, and Deborah's received quite a lot of questions from me. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, so um, here we go. We're going to get straight into it. So. My first question that people say makes me sound like Scylla Black, but could you please tell the people listening a little bit about yourself and your career to date? Sure, Rebecca. Um, as you've mentioned, my name is Deborah Forsyth. Um, and if I was telling you about myself, um, I'd probably start by saying that I'm a passionate educator and a passionate traveller. And I've been very fortunate and I've managed to have a career that's enabled me to combine the two of those very nicely together. My teaching career uh, started many, many years ago um, in a school in Romford in England. Um, I taught in the UK for just two years before the overseas teaching bug bit me um, and I started looking for work abroad. And I've spent the rest of my teaching career moving around um, a number of different countries and a huge variety of different schools um, to where I am today. So most of that time has been spent in the Middle East, but I have had some time elsewhere. I've had a couple of years in Abu Dhabi, um, seven years in Muscat, three years in Damascus, which is a fantastically interesting experience, three years in Vienna, um, a year at a school in Sharjah, and uh, as you are aware, then uh, 20 <laughs> years at my last school here in Dubai. And I've moved through a variety of middle and senior leadership positions along that career route. Well, thank you so much. I mean, there were little bits about that that I did already know, but I think it's just so wonderful for people to hear, you know, a vast international career because I was as you know one of those people that said oh I'll just come over I'll do my two years and then I'll go and then I very much caught the Dubai bug and just like you I'm still very much here um so you've mentioned obviously the majority of your career has been within living and working in the Middle East um so you will have seen so much 
so much change in this region in such a period of time. Um, what drew you here in the first place? Yeah, that's an interesting question um, because probably really nothing. Uh, once I decided I, I, I wanted to travel, um, I do remember back in my, my London uh, flat, back in the days when the Times Educational Supplement was a paper that got delivered to your house once a week, um, looking for jobs pretty much all over the world. Um, and I had I had um, scattered on the world with my CV. I had applied for jobs in uh, Barbados, uh, Bermuda, Papua New Guinea, and a number of jobs in the Middle East. So um, I actually ended up in the Middle East by default because it was the first job that I was offered actually was in Abu Dhabi. Um, so the world was calling rather than the Middle East at that point. But having actually got here, certainly I got hooked in by the culture and found that I really loved the culture of the Middle East and, of course, the weather, apart from this time of the year. Yeah. And I, I really loved the, the differentness um, of the culture and of the life to where to back in England, where I'd come from. And, and then I think it was it sort of got in my blood. And then it was sort of the Middle East pretty much. From there on, um, I, I went off to Vienna, remember that I didn't like European winters and very quickly came uh, back to the sandpit. I think, again, it's that thing, isn't it? It is the culture and the heritage. And I think when we touch upon the school where you and I met, um, that's the kind of thing that's kind of, well, it's certainly instilled in my heart. And I only had three years there, whereas you had, like you said, already 20. But it is something about that. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Like, what has made you stay here for so long? Because obviously, when people see Dubai and the UAE now, I mean, even 10 years ago, this is not what Dubai and the UAE were. So 20 years ago, I mean, there can't have been hardly anything here. <laughs> Well, it, it was it was a slightly different place, but it was it wasn't quite in the desert. I, I'm not quite that old, so it wasn't quite still in the desert. But it, it was, of course, much less developed. And I think there's been something there's something really wonderful about seeing a place develop in the way that the the Emirates have developed over that time. Um, I guess it's a little bit akin to seeing children develop within your school and sort of feeling really proud of their success in each development as they go. Uh, so I think that there's a similar feeling um, to seeing the growth and development of a country that has come a phenomenal distance in such a short period of time. Um, yes, I've had to catch myself uh, and think that the country's younger than I am. Um, <laughs> and you look at what's, what's been achieved in that time, and it really is phenomenal. And very, very exciting because you feel you don't have to go to a different place to see something new because there's constantly something new to see and do here. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's really interesting. I was um, out for dinner at the weekend with one of the new teachers from my new English department and they're saying oh you know like what kind of things can I do and I said oh you've got to do this you've got to go for a hot air balloon ride in the desert you've got to go on a boat you've got to do this you've got to go to Ab and I was like oh my gosh Rebecca stop talking like you don't work for the tourist board but it is like that isn't it there's just you don't need to go anywhere else if you don't want to there's just so much to do here absolutely so I'm going to move on and I'm going to ask you a little bit more about leadership. Now, the next question is a huge question to ask somebody who has been a head teacher and a school principal. Um, but I did just want you to take a little bit of time and reflect for our listeners so that you could tell us and share with us some of your career highlights, please. 
Yeah, this is a really tricky one, as you mentioned, because there really are so many. And and in, just thinking about this question takes me from from sort of a, a huge realm of, of different areas of the work as well. I think so many of, of my career highlights will be actually really quite small things um, and they will be about individual students and individual student successes. Um, a student that maybe previously uh, hasn't been doing very well and they have got had this wonderful unexpected success. They found that the key and they, they're moving on wonderfully in their learning. Um, so I think it can be an individual student success that it can be a real highlight for me. Um, also, meeting students that I've taught who are now in the world doing wonderful things. So um, I've, I've bumped into um, students that I've taught before in, in hospitals who are now doctors um, on a plane as a pilot. Um, and I think seeing, seeing again, a bit like it's that development, seeing someone that you've known as a, as a, as a child developing themselves and their personality and then seeing them as a fully formed adult contributing wonderfully to the world, I think is a real highlight. Uh, and I think for any teacher, that's probably really what it's all about. On a personal level, um, uh, headship, um, my f becoming head of Latifa School was was certainly a, a high point of my career from a personal level. Um, becoming a head anyway, um, I think for, for any head teacher is a pinnacle of a career. And Latifa School, um, as you'll know, is, is a very, very unique school um, serving as it does the Emirati population, um, girls in particular, obviously, in the UAE. And, and I felt that it was such a privilege and such an honour to be able to serve the local community in that school. So that certainly was a career highlight. And, and probably the most bizarre career highlight, I would say, you, you um, mentioned briefly earlier that the situation that we were in, Rebecca, when Latifa School closed and, and we were in a position where of having um, 750 students and 189 staff who needed to find a new school place uh, and a new job. And I think going through the closure process of that school um, as successfully as we did, making sure that we went out on a high, um, went out with a bang, and, and then seeing students and teachers moving on and being very successful in their next position. It's a rather strange career highlight to have, a closure of a school, but I think to have approached it um, as we did as a community and, and had that progress so successfully is a bizarre highlight too. Yeah, but without completely, I don't know, this is such a difficult thing to say without just making it sound like I'm completely stroking your ego, but you have, that was so <laughs> down to you because I think for you to turn what was fundamentally at the, the time such a negative and how you steered us all into it becoming a positive, a, a reluctant positive <laughs> at times, even after. Um, I think that's a real testament. And it's another reason why I'm absolutely just so thrilled to have you on the show, because there's just so many things that I think that you will be able to share with people. Because, like I say, turning something like that and you having to deliver that news to so many people, like you say, and, and the students as well, that was a phenomenal point, I think, in all of our careers. Um, but there were just a couple of things that I just would really, really like to draw back on. I mean, I could talk about that situation <laughs> all evening, but we've got so many other questions. But um, 
the fact that you said my highlights will be seen as the small things, the individual successes of individual students. That's just so powerful, though, isn't it? Like you say, you know, you hear these stories or you see these things or you for me, when I go back home to North Yorkshire and I bump into a student in the street and I think, oh, my goodness, like it's incredible when you can see where these young people have come from, the development, like you've already said. But I think for me, one of the biggest privileges working internationally, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about international teaching later, is the emphasis on the fact that we are teaching more global citizens. I really feel that a lot more teaching in the UAE than I did teaching in the UK. And the idea that, you know, these students are very well aware of their position in the world. And I don't know about you, but for me, certainly, you might be able to add on to this, like, it really does feel like we're teaching, you know, like I said, global citizens, people who have got that worldwide awareness. And that is such a privilege. I'm sorry, I feel like I've waffled what I was trying to say. <laughs> no, I, I think I think it is. I, teaching any young person for me has always felt like a, a real privilege and, and, and the reason for me being in the in the teaching career. But yes, there's there's something really quite special about the community that we all work in here in the UAE, which is such a an international community and a mobile community. So we we are certainly teaching students who've probably um, done far more travel and had way more experience of the world than than we might in a in a school back home, for example. A hundred percent. I'm constantly learning new things about new cultures and new, especially now I'm in a more international school rather than, well, even in a local school, I feel that what I learned about local heritage and culture will stay with me forever. But now, you know, teaching in a more international, the kind of things that I'm learning about other students and young people is just absolutely, it's invaluable. I'll keep it forever. Um, Anyway, I'm going to move on because I'm so aware of time and the fact that we've barely even scratched the surface of all the questions that I have to ask you. Um, so we've talked about leadership, headship, middle leadership. You've touched upon the fact throughout your career that you've had those roles and responsibilities. Then obviously being a school principal. Um, I would just like to know what advice you would like to offer or could offer to any people who are aspiring leaders, anybody who's looking for that kind of aspirational leadership role. I think for me, um, and I think I think leadership is a is a very personal thing. Um, and actually, that probably is the point that I want to make here is that as a leader, you need to be yourself um, to be very authentic in your leadership. And I think authenticity is for me is something that's phenomenally important in my own leadership. Um, and I think sometimes when when leaders are, are starting out on their leadership journey they may model themselves on on someone else that they have seen in leadership that they admire perhaps um and that maybe that doesn't necessarily fit them and i think this is probably a little bit like in teachers starting out on their teaching career and you have to find out what kind of teacher you are because we all teach in slightly different ways and and you find what works for you as a teacher and i'd say that's very much the same as a leader so you do need to find out who you are as a leader um, and, and do you so that you are very authentic in your leadership um, i think very important that you that you walk the talk because leadership is not about saying the right things but about doing the right things and doing the right things all the time even when no one's looking so that you you have high integrity in your leadership and i think that then is what generates trust from from your colleagues in you as a leader 
So, uh, yeah, integrity and authenticity, I think, will be two key things that I would say um, that, that aspiring leaders should keep at the forefront of their minds. I'm honestly scribbling down notes so quickly so that I can quote you on this later. I'm like, okay, integrity, authenticity. But honestly, you know, those are the kind of things that people really need to hear. And I think, again, what you've just said, like rooting it back to, you know, you kind of when the first time you stand up in front of a class or, you know, whether that's when you're training or whatever. And it is really, really important, I think. So I think for anybody who is listening, and we've got quite a few listeners, Chantelle's listening, by the way. So hi, Chantelle. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) us. It's so wonderful. There's Becky Barry's here. Like we've got so many of the like Latifa stuff it's just so wonderful um so yeah I think all of those things and I'm as I'm writing them down I'm just kind of nodding away and thinking yeah okay this is exactly the kind of thing that people definitely want to hear and it's really really helpful so thank you so much and it kind of links to my next question because everything you're saying I'm nodding along with because it resonates because this is the experience that I had with you as my head teacher, you know, coming to the UAE, you were the first head teacher that actually employed me in a full middle middle leadership role, you know, first head of English post came under Latifa. And, you know, that's something that I will treasure forever. Um, and having worked with you, and one of the things that became was really apparent, even when we were just having conversations over Skype or over email, um, is I know how strongly for you, you have the importance of creating a certain culture in your school and not just within the school, but the whole community in which we were working and we were providing for. Um, I'd really appreciate it if you could talk to everybody who's listening a little bit about that and how you do that effectively, how you can kind of build, create, and then sustain a culture in the school that you are leading. Sure. Yeah. Again, I, um, I, I will talk, I will talk about um, authenticity Um and 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 walking the talk i think it's very important as a leader to recognize that uh you set the tone as a teacher you set the tone in your classroom and as a leader you set the tone in your department or in your school um and and that's something that actually as a leader can be a little bit scary is to realize that the mood that you're in as you walk down a corridor can actually affect the mood of other people. Um, and that, that's quite a big responsibility to, to carry with you sometimes. Um, but I, I think to, to authentically um, decide what culture you want and then to live that culture very personally, you're constantly role modeling what you, how you want your teachers to behave, how you want your students to behave. Um, and then to be um, to be celebrating and recognizing elements of that culture where, where they're taking place, a bit like you you recognize the good behavior in your classroom. Um, and then to be addressing anything that that does not fit the culture. So if you've got things going on in your school that are not supporting the culture that you that you want to have in your school, then they need to be addressed again. If we if we um, use the classroom analogy, you would need to address the behaviour that is not acceptable in your classroom. Um, and I think those small things, role modelling constantly, recognising and celebrating the culture that you want to see and addressing culture that you don't want to see. Uh, and I think little by little, those things add up. Um, I think when you're when you're in a position where you're employing people, you also want to employ people that you believe will share that culture and reinforce that culture. So I think recruitment becomes another another tool for creating the culture that you want um, within your school or your department. 
I think, again, that's just so important. I think it's really nice that we're kind of embedding and reinforcing those whole things about the authenticity, the integrity, the role modeling. For me, as somebody who, as you know, is an aspirational leader, it's really nice to kind of hear these things because, again, it's those building blocks and building on what you already know. So the tone that you want to set in your classroom is the tone that you're then going to set as you are, you know, moving further up the school and thinking about those things. And I know a lot of the people who are listening now live or will be listening back are in a very similar position to me. And so I think it's something that's quite nice to remember because that kind of whole imposter syndrome, I remember when you appointed me and just to give context to people who are listening, um, I was the only person that applied to be head of English, but it wasn't like the job was just handed to me. Deborah and the senior leadership team really did put me through my paces. And I don't know if you remember this, Deborah, but when you phoned me to offer me the job and you gave me the feedback, you actually said to me, if you weren't very good, we we weren't going to appoint you. We were going to let you do it for a little while while we found somebody better. And I remember thinking okay, I really respect that. And I really, really do appreciate that. But the imposter syndrome really struck in quite quickly. And I think what you've actually said to people is so helpful and so supportive, because that idea of, you know, you set in the tone in your classroom, but then you just building that up bigger in the school, that kind of makes it feel a little bit more manageable for any of us that kind of think, oh, I would like to, but I'm a little bit scared to dip my toe in the water. So thank you for that. I again, I'm waffling on, but I'm just so inspired by everything you're saying and I know that everybody listening will be as well um also just so everybody is aware and, and I am going to call her out for this Rebecca Barry has just messaged our entire Latifa school whatsapp group to say that you are live right now Deborah so you may find that you've got even more listeners so <laughs> if that happens that is all down to Becky so thanks very much Rebecca Barry <laughs> we, we we do maybe don't appreciate we'll see how it goes um so we've talked about leadership, we've talked about creating a certain culture. Um, I would really like to know from your perspective, again, having worked under you, but for people who haven't worked under you and are listening in and the listeners are actually now really racking up, um, what are the hallmark, hallmarks, in your opinion, for a good or better school? I, I, I'll probably... Um... I'll probably think about this in line with with good teaching because I think the two go together. Um, I think good and effective teaching and a good and effective school um, really have similar similar aspects to them. Um, so if I was looking for, for good teaching in a classroom, or if I was looking for a, the signs of a, of a good school, I'd certainly be looking for happy learners who felt very safe in the environment. Um, and I would be looking for teachers who are committed and enjoying their work. Um, I think the feeling happy and enjoying your environment, both as a teacher and as a student, are crucial um, to a positive working environment for everyone. You don't you don't learn if you're if you're not happy. You don't give your best as a teacher if you're not happy. And so, in terms of we were talking about creating school cultures. Um, as a leader, then, I think that, that the onus is very much on you to make sure that you're creating an environment where where your teachers and your students feel safe and they feel happy. That's not to say we're wanting everyone to be happy all the time. Life is not like that, but certainly safe and in an environment where you can develop. So 
for me, they're, they're the crux of a good school, uh, the crux of a good classroom. Now, there's, of course, lots and lots and lots of other things that go into good teaching and into a good school. But if I'm looking at the underlying uh, environment that I want there, it, it's safety, it's happiness, it's a place where people feel valued, cared for, and that they can blossom, that they can make mistakes um, and feel that that's not the end of the world for them, that when they make a mistake, they'll get supported to not make that mistake again, to be better people. That sort of development um, and that sort of comfort in development, I think, is, is would be my starting point for a good classroom and a good school. I mean, you've covered absolutely so much there and I'm going to just kind of circle back and go over some of the things that you've said because, you know, the safety, the happiness, the feeling valued, feeling cared for, the idea of development. Um, we've got Jo Bell who is now also listening and she has put in the chat hashtag this girl can and for anybody that's listening live right now or for anyone that's listening back and doesn't know this was very much our Latifa school mantra um, and it was very much all over our social media um, this girl can and it's really quite wonderful when I see how many people have actually logged in to listen tonight who are all part of that kind of ethos but again that's a real part of the culture when we go back to what we were talking about that you were intrinsic and you created and we all kind of embodied and yesterday I think it was yesterday or the day before they've all kind of rolled into one with the scholars cup drama but um it came up on my all my social media our video that we did together as the school the first one ever the fight song video and I think, again, that whole idea of creating a culture where the, the staff felt happy and felt valued and felt cared for and making, you know, to make mistakes and to grow and to develop. I think it's just really wonderful that you've highlighted that for people to listen to, either people who are aspiring to be leaders or people who are leaders and just thinking, OK, this is the kind of environment that really, really helps and supports people. Somebody's just put in the chat as well a sense of belonging is really important in the ability to feel valued and to contribute and I think that kind of sums up Deborah what do you think about what it is that you're saying yeah certainly a sense of belonging is phenomenally important um, a, a school a classroom they're communities and um, and that sense of community, um, you've certainly referred to it at, uh, as a Latifa school as a sense of community a number of times. Um, and I think that's that's just a beautiful environment to be in. And whether you're leading within a school environment or a business environment or, or whatever else, um, if you're not developing a sense of community and belonging, then I think you're losing out on what you can get from your work, but you're also losing out on what you can be giving to the people that you're working with. We all need to connect. I 100% agree. And this is why I'm absolutely so loving this interview. A, because I was so excited to talk to you. But now the fact that I can see so many of our, and we call it a community, but we weren't. We were Latifa family. And it's becoming very much an old Latifa <laughs> interview, which it wasn't meant to be. Uh, but that's what we were. We were the Latifa family. And... I think it's one of those rare and incredible things when you can find, especially in the, and this is what it's going to be really good to kind of move on to talk to, especially with your new role in the BSME, but that whole idea of creating still a sense of family when you are so far away from home. And I'm just checking. Yeah, my mum is still listening. So <laughs> that's amazing. You see, bringing all of these people together. Um, okay, so... 
we are going to move on and we are going to talk a little bit now. We've talked quite a lot about the past and how we've found ourselves in this international teaching journey together. Um, but I really, really want to talk about and celebrate and first of all, congratulate this phenomenal new role as the CEO of British Schools Middle East. Um, now, a lot of people do tune into the show who do live and work in the UAE, so we'll be familiar, but a lot of people have been listening because they're very intrigued about moving over to probably a school in Dubai or the UAE. So it'd be really, really helpful if you wouldn't mind just telling people, first of all, about the organization, but then what your role as CEO also entails, please. Sure. Um, and it, well, it's a new role. I'm not quite in the role yet. Um, I'm starting to um, put the shoes on and see what they feel like this week. I've done a bit of a bit of, ha bit of handover work um, with with the outgoing CEO. Um, so yes, it's a role, a very different role for me, um, but a role where um, I will continue to do what I've always done in, in my role in leadership, which is to try to create a sense of community. Um, not doing that in a school now, but doing that across the Middle East with a variety of schools. Um, for those people who possibly don't know the organisation, BSME, British Schools of the Middle East, is a member organisation which represents 150 schools, um, more than 150, I think we had some new members this week, more than 150 schools from nine different countries across the Middle East, um, representing many thousands of students in those schools. Um, our member schools are British curriculum schools, um, although some of those schools may also offer other curriculums such as IB alongside uh, the, the English um, curriculum. The organisation offers a range of services to schools. Um, firstly, it offers um, schools an opportunity to, um, to be recognised for the quality of their school. All BSME member schools have to reach a certain standard to become members of the organisation and are required within the first two years of their membership to um, have a BSO, that's a British Schools Overseas Inspection. So there's a, there's a, a kite mark, if you like, attached to membership of the organisation. Um, from If you've got mem uh, listeners here who are thinking about moving to a school in the Middle East, certainly if you're looking at a school that is a BSME member, um, it does give you a certain guarantee of a quality of a, the school that you're going into. As a, as a school joining, deciding to take membership of BSME, the services um, that we provide are services to students, um, to teachers, to leaders. So we provide services across the full spectrum of the school. We provide CPD opportunities for teachers. Um, we provide student events. Um, you've been talking about your debating events today and really good, great success there. Well done on that. Thank um, you. There are a number of different, a number of different student events that the, the, the organization helps to arrange and, and they are across the BSME region. So it gives students an opportunity to compete in events with um, not just children from different schools within their country, but different schools from different countries within the region as well. Uh, so CPD opportunities and network opportunities for teachers. So an opportunity to meet with other teachers um, teaching your subject or um, facing similar challenges or on a similar career progression. Um, and 
guidance and networking also for leaders of schools. So really serving, trying to serve every layer of our school community. Um, our mission is strengthening schools and serving students. Um, so we're doing that, as I said, to, for, for the teachers in the schools, the leaders of the schools and for the, the students themselves. And, and our ethos is very much um, a membership organisation, which is by the members for the members. So the organisation um, depends very much on the members taking part in the activities that we do. We have a great platform for sharing of good practice. So we will very often have members of um, different schools within the organisation feeding back on, on how they've, uh, they've tackled a particular problem, what success they've had in a particular area. Um, we have members of the organisation that do research within the organisation and share the outcomes of that research with each other. So it, it is very much about that community feel. Um, it's not it's not a money-making exercise, I should say that. It's a not-for-profit organisation. And it is about bringing the British schools community across the region together and helping them to help each other. I'm really, really interested, and there's a few things, again, that I really want to circle back to. I had, um, a couple of months ago now, um, hashtag Collab UAE, Andy Price and Tom Sale on the show with me to talk about, you know, everything that you've just kind of said about that idea of networking and creating a sense of community because one of the biggest stigmas that I've found about teaching overseas and certainly in the Middle East is the idea that we don't really well that my previous head teacher before I moved to Latifah told me that I was moving to an educational backwater which I will forever love that that complete phrase and I, it does take me back quite often when I when I think back to myself but that stigma that you know you're moving out to the Middle East and you're going to be stuck in an area where there is no support no CPD no networking and actually because of that and because of organizations like BSME we're actually in one of the strongest positions that we've ever been in I mean how do you feel when people actually kind of have that impression when really all of these things are actually um, there and available? Like, what, what does that make you think? I, I actually think that at the UAE is probably one of the, um, the most dynamic places to be in terms of educational development at the moment. Um, anybody who's already here knows the pace at which the education in the UAE moves. Uh, in fact, everything in the UAE moves. Um, so I think to, to say that it's a backwater really couldn't be further from the truth. And what, whilst the, the UAE education has perhaps historically um, been based quite largely on, on the British educational model, um, I think it has come a long way in its own right since then. Um, and, and dare I say that the uh, the British model could maybe learn a few things from education in the UAE. I think it's a phenomenally strong, strong place to be as a teacher and a leader to be really at the cutting edge. That's really interesting because we are going to come back onto that in a little while and I'm going to ask you some more questions a little bit about the British curriculum and the whole idea. Um, we have had a question from Becky Barry and she wants to know please how does a school become a BSME school? I know you touched on a couple of things, I know it links with BSO but if you wouldn't mind just explaining that to people who are listening who might be interested in looking and joining the organisation that would be great. 
Sure, yeah. Um, th there's a membership uh, process, so the school would need to apply for membership. Um, the first step would be um, a quick chat with, with a member of the organisation, um, just to get a feel for what the school is and whether the school broadly fits the criteria. Uh, we then have um, country reps of BSME uh, in each of the countries in which we have members. We have um, one school leader who is the representative within that country who would pay a visit to the school. Um, and we have a, a, a criteria sheet that they would check through to see that the school um, fits the bill of what we would consider to be a British school overseas. Um, Certainly things like safeguarding um, are very high on that list. So we would be looking for all of the basics that really do need to be in place uh, in a school um, for us to say that we consider it of that standard. Um, that would then be followed up once the review was done by the country rep. That gets sent back to us at head office and, and we would then follow up with the head teacher of the school um, to complete, assuming everything was fine, to complete the membership process. And as I said, then if the school um, doesn't have uh, a, a, an inspection with the, the a BSO inspectorate already in place, we would then be expecting that that school would complete an inspection within the first two years of their membership. Um, and that's just a further a further sort of evidencing of the quality of the standard of education within the school. Well, we had at my new school, we had our first BSO inspection earlier this year, which was quite a nice run out for me before our annual KHDA inspections, which are due to start next academic year. Um, and it was, it was really interesting, you know, in terms of balancing, again, that kind of the expectations of the culture of the Middle East, but then also the fact that we are providing a British curriculum and that kind of education to make sure that it's supported because... I always feel really strongly about students receiving, you know, a detail and, you know, cultural capital for me is a huge deal. But balancing that between the expectations of the Middle East, and we especially know that in the culture that we used to work in, and the fact that we're providing a British curriculum can be a real challenge for people, can't it? It can. And, and I think the school that we've been at, Rebecca, is, is a really interesting um, environment to be in where you're teaching it. it you're teaching an English curriculum in a, in a British school to um, a student body that is 100% Emirati. Uh, and I think actually then getting that balance right so that you're taking all of the qualities and values of a British education, but you're contextualising it for your demographic. Um, that, that's, that's, a, that's the real sweet spot. Definitely. <laughs> a sweet spot and also you know quite professionally it's quite a challenge isn't it to be able to kind of mm -hmm. hit all the curriculum markers but then also making sure you're being culturally um appropriate um oh we've got another question from becky she is firing them through tonight i'm loving the fact that she's joined the show um she said what will having the bsme accreditation mean and is it worth it to kind of gain student numbers when obviously we know we are working in an environment, certainly in the UAE, mm. that is, um, you know, fee paying. So a lot of the schools are private and unlike BSME, they are for profit, whereas obviously you're working for a not for profit organisation. Yeah, I would say um, I, I think there's a lot more to membership than just the, the kite mark to, to get more bums on seats. Uh, but but certainly from, from a parent's point of view, uh, as a parent looking at the multitude of different schools and different curriculum that's available in the UAE, knowing where to start is quite a challenge. And I think what BSME membership and um, 
and the BSO accreditation gives you is, is that kite mark. It, it gives you something that allows parents who are potentially sending their children to your school something that lets them know that this school is of a certain standard. So it, it sets you apart from other schools um, and, and therefore does help with student numbers because I think it helps with your parental confidence. It, it gives them something um, that they can go for directly. Now, obviously, there's there's a number of other things in the UAE. We, we can talk about KHDA inspections and the ADIC inspections. They are another tool for parents to look at the quality of education. Um, I think there's something about the British education system. Uh, historically, it has always had a very high reputation and um, the, the the BSO, particularly as the accreditation that we expect the SME schools to have, does give us a UK um, accredited stamp of approval on a school rather than just a local one. So the inspectorates that do the BSO that you've just recently had, obviously, Rebecca, uh, they are authorised within the UK. They're accredited within the UK as organisations and the BSO inspection is recognised within the UK. So there's a there's there's something that gives an external accreditation factor. Very important, perhaps, um, for parents and students who are considering going back to the UK to know that there is good alignment between the school that your child is at here and the school that they may be going to if they go back to the UK. But I would say even for for parents who maybe are from another country and won't be heading back to the UK, to know that. The standard of the school here has been rubber stamped as being on a par with schools in the UK is a very important factor for parents and certainly something that does help with student numbers. Although I would say that a BSME membership gives you much more than just that. Well, for me, it sounds like BSME membership. Again, it goes back to the idea that I was saying to you earlier, that idea of having those professional development opportunities. And, you know, for me, in the UAE, my professional development has never been flourishing more. So I think for anybody that is listening who, again, is on the fence or anything, the idea, you know, it, it's quite, you know, the UAE really can open quite a lot of doors in terms of that kind of professional development. Um, we've got another question now. It's from Lisa. Now, if that is Lisa Wood, hello. Amazing. Love that you're listening. Um, but could be any Lisa, but I'd like to, it is, it's Lisa Wood, this is fantastic, this, honestly, Deborah, it is like a full-on reunion show tonight, this is the best thing ever, um, Lisa has asked, um, how is the inspection criteria different when you're looking at BSME and BSO um, to the KHDA criteria, now, for anybody listening, this is a very UAE-specific question, so I do apologise in that respect, but it's also, very, very important that we kind of get that out there for those of us who are thinking about joining BSME or thinking about BSO accreditation in our schools. I think there's, there's really quite a lot of overlap. Um, I think good, good teaching um, is good teaching uh, and any inspection system is going to be looking for broadly the same things. 
I'd say, uh, and of course, the KHDA system, uh, inspection system was originally based on the Ofsted inspection system. And so the, there is quite good alignment with the UK inspection system anyway. Uh, I think where you will see subtle differences, um, obviously, within a, within a KHDA inspection, they're inspecting um, with a UAE framework and a UAE perspective. And so there will be certain things about um, the UAE, for example, um, Vision 2021 or Vision 2071, there will be um, goals that the UAE has for itself as a country, which it will be trying to fulfil through its education system. And so there will, be there will be things within the inspection that are quite specific to the UAE and its own development goals um, that you would not find in, in a BSO inspection. And similarly, with a, with a Br uh, British schools overseas inspection, there will be certain aspects about a British education, uh, about British values um, that will be quite specific because we're assessing with a British perspective. Um, but I'd say broadly from a teaching and learning perspective, from a school organisational perspective, there are not huge differences between them. Okay, I think that's really, really helpful. And again, it's really good for people to know as well. You know, you mentioning links to Ofsted and things there. It's really helpful for people in the UK who might be thinking about coming over. You know, this is not, to quote my previous head, an educational backwater. And when I say previous, I mean previous, previous. I don't mean Deborah. <laughs> you know, this is not an educational backwater that is very much rooted. And this is one of my questions coming up to Deborah about why we're so closely linked to the British curriculum. Um, but because I'm very aware that we are fast, uh, I would really like to know while we are still talking about the BSME, and it's been lovely to have some extra questions tonight as well, um, is what attracted you to this role? Now, knowing you professionally, I have some idea, but it'd be really nice for you to share with people who are listening, of which there are many, um, what it was about this particular role. Being CEO, shall we just say again, of British Schools Middle East. Let's just get that back out there because that is quite a boss role, Deborah. So congratulations again. But what was the attraction? Um, I, th I think the attraction really is, is my knowledge and, uh, of the organisation um, as a member. Um, Lasifa School was a founding member of the organisation when it started um, 35 years ago. And uh, as, as a, a teacher at a, at a BSME school and as a head of a BSME school, I have seen the benefits that the organisation can bring. So I've, I've felt it from the other side. Um, I've certainly uh, been very fortunate to enjoy the network opportunities that brought me um, to build relationships with other leaders. Um, there is a... There, at the moment, for example, there's a, a BSME heads WhatsApp group, um, and it is the go-to. Any BSME head that has a problem in their school, that doesn't know how they're going to handle a problem, that doesn't know what the KHDA directive is on X, it's the go-to place. Um, and the fact that BSME um, helps you to network with so many other people that are in the same situation as you and facing the same challenges. They're very much things that I have pe personally benefited from um, as, as a member of BSME. And therefore, that was a big pull for me, having seen how it served me and wanting to <clears throat> give other people that benefit. 
Um, sorry, Deborah, I'm just having yet another technical issue. I'm hoping you can still hear me. Um, mine completely just cut out then. I'm hoping that nobody else's did. Um, the last part that I heard, can, and did everybody else hear Deborah and everything she was saying just then? If you could just type that into the chat, that would be really helpful. It must be my internet. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, I'm going to move us straight on just because, again, I am just looking at the time. Brilliant. Everybody's saying yes, they could hear. That is wonderful. Um, I would really like to know then, we've kind of touched this on, on this a little bit. Katie H has just entered as well, by the way, the studio. And I'm really hoping that's Katie Harmon, another member of our Latifa community. So if it is, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. I just can't believe we've had so many people from Latifa and I've had so many technical issues. This is, I swear, never happened before. Um, so what I would really like to know from you now, Deborah, is why you think that the British curriculum is at the forefront of international education? Yeah, um, not because they think that the rest of the world's a backwater, I hope. Um, I, I do think there's, there's a lot of history here, really. Um, I think oh, I'm no expert in history either, but um, I, I think probably it goes back to um, the travel um, that that the British have done historically and taken their curriculum with them. Um, and I think a lot of it stems from that. But certainly the, the efforts within the, the United Kingdom to keep the education standard high, um, and, and I might even say here in spite of some of the education secretaries that we have had, um, has certainly helped. I think that the willingness of British teachers to travel is also um, probably a key factor here. There are huge numbers of British qualified teachers in schools across the world. Um, so I think the willingness of British teachers to travel and to take their qualifications and experience with them is part of that, that scenario also. Definitely a historical factor. Um, I do think though, um, as I've mentioned already, that that there is huge developments in education going on in other parts of the world uh, and and the UK education needs to be careful not to sit on its laurels. Have we lost you there, Rebecca? Um, I hope thinking that I'm here. It keeps cutting out on my end. I was able to hear a lot of what you were saying then, but I think it's really, really important everything that you were saying, the idea that you are to the forefront. You can hear me. Can we hear Deborah? Can everybody be heard? Oh I my goodness, I can't believe this is happening today. <laughs> I've been so looking forward to this show. Why is it all going wrong? Um, but I do think it's really, really important that we do think about the fact that, and like you said earlier on in the show, the UAE, it's moving quickly, it's reactionary, and we've got to make sure that every kind of education system stays in the same kind of way and we don't get kind of stuck. I mean, for me as an English teacher and as a head of English, it's really important when I think about, you know, cultural capital. But balancing that for me now in an international setting, and again, I'm very much subject specific here, it's about making sure that cultural capital is balanced and measured across all of the cultures that I'm actually teaching. 
So I think it's really important that we consider that when we're thinking. See, Rebecca Barry, she's there. Not just English, but it's true. It's not just English, but it's the idea that we're making sure that we are providing, and again, going back to the idea of for the global citizens, that we are responsible for teaching. So I don't know about you, Deborah, but that's certainly how I feel, is certainly the international teaching. Yes, I respect the British curriculum, but it's certainly opened my eyes a lot more to, to what's out there. Absolutely. And, and for me, one of the big tools of international education is the opportunity we have to create a greater understanding. You've talked about the international environment that you're in, Rebecca, and how the, the students that you teach have got a much wider understanding of the world. And, and I think with that wider understanding of the world comes a, a better understanding of other people um, beyond tolerance, but to acceptance of, of difference. And uh, yeah, dare I say, world peace. <laughs> I think we feed into world peace with the, with the greater understanding that we help to develop in an international school environment. No, I completely and utterly agree. Again, it's that kind of understanding and tolerance of religions and cultures and backgrounds. And it, it has been completely eye-opening for me. And this is one of the things that I always say to people about encouraging that international teaching perspective. You know, try it, have a go, see what happens. Because you will learn so much from the students in your classroom. I feel like I'm learning just as much from them as, well, probably learning more from them than they are from me, let's be honest. But that's how it feels. Um, I'm so aware that we are coming close to the end of this interview. Um, absolutely, I could talk to you forever. And what has been just so wonderful is the fact that we have got so many Latifa alumni who have been joining us as well this evening. Not so wonderful while I've been having technical hitch after technical hitch, but we're still getting there and we're doing it. Um, so I would just, oh, hang on. A question has just come in about, is this the IB philosophy in terms of thinking about education? So I'm gonna pass that straight yeah. to you, Deborah. I'd like to think that it's educational philosophy and that IB don't have a monopoly on it. <laughs> I think it's just good, sensible educational philosophy. It's so true. I mean, I say this all the time, you know, we're teaching holistically, we're teaching the whole person. We're not just teaching, you know, in my question, like, sorry, in my subject area, I'm not just teaching them English, I'm teaching them to be a, hopefully a good person. And those things are really, really important. So I, I would agree with what Deborah's just said. It's not an IB philosophy. It should perhaps be an educational philosophy. Um, another question from Becky. She says, does the GCSE, in our opinion, we've gone wildly all over tonight. This has been amazing. Does the GCSE set a student up for DP? Again, I'm passing that straight back to you, Deborah, because you know that and I don't. Um, I certainly think it can. And I've, I've certainly set taught in, in schools that, that do GCSE followed by DP. Um, I think the IB has a particular approach in terms of its questioning and its coursework um, that is possibly more exploratory than some of the GCSE syllabuses. And I think the onus then is on is you as a teacher and you as a school, if that's your setup, to make sure that you're using those approaches within your GCSE teaching um, so that you are giving 
your students the best preparation for the approach that you're going to have at DP. But certainly from a, from a content point of view, I think they marry together quite well. Okay, so we've gone leadership, we have gone BSME, and now I'm going to go very, very personal for my last couple of questions, and this is pure Deborah Forsyth. So my first one, um, and again, I'm glad you've given you some time to think about it, because when nobody's ever asked me this question, but every time I set it, I can't just pick one. So please don't feel pressured to only pick one teacher if you've got more than many, more than one, sorry. But if you could go back in time and thank one teacher that has influenced you, um, who would it be? Yeah, I, I, it is difficult to pick one. And I'd say that there are different teachers for different things. But I, I, will, I will pick one for the sake of argument now. And um, I will pick a teacher that I had in junior school, actually, um, whose name was Alan Jones. Um, he was a larger than life, very jolly Welsh gentleman. Um, and when I was talking earlier about happy classrooms, um, I, I think Mr. Jones had the happiest of all of the classrooms that I ever had the pleasure to be in. Um, he made learning fun every single day. He valued every single child in the classroom. Um, and um, those of you that have, have, have ever heard Sir John Jones speak um, will, will know that he implores all of us to go back and find that teacher that made a difference in our in our own schooling and let them know. Um, I've sought out Mr. Alan Jones. I've yet to find him to, to go back and tell him just how much I enjoyed being a, a student in his classroom. Um, any of our listeners yourself um, who, who, who made a difference in your education and can you go back and, and let that person know? Um, Sir John Jones talks about magic weavers um, and I think that's what we often are as teachers and it's great if we could take the opportunity to recognise the people that weaved magic for us as children. I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I think about it for me, I mean, it was... I just love that that phrase, magic weavers. Like it is like they they were inherent throughout my entire schooling career, which is why you know. And I've said to people on the show so many times before, we sometimes forget the influence that we have, and sometimes you know the power that we can have in terms of shaping positively and, unfortunately, for some experiences negatively. You know the experiences that young people have in the classroom, and I think that if you keep remembering that, then that is going to be the reason why children enjoy your lessons or find something that they can enjoy with your lessons or you know in your school environment I'm taking it right back now to what you were saying earlier on in the show about you know being a leader you'll set the tone in your classroom you're a classroom leader and then you take that and you make it bigger and you turn it across the whole school and you know I think for me that idea of being a, a head teacher or a principal and the idea of creating that whole environment and culture is just so powerful but we are coming rapidly to the end. And so this is, and I'm really, really interested. I'm sorry, Deborah. I'm really interested to know, putting you on the spot here, um, your response to this question. Um, so my favorite question that I always ask, not only is it if you could go back in time and which was a teacher, it's um, if you could put one element of teaching into room 101. And from Deborah Forsyth, I can't wait to hear this answer. Um, what would it be? Oh, I could pick on all sorts of little things like, oh, 
constantly writing the objective on the top of every page or those little nuts and bolts of teaching. But actually, for me, I'd go for something that I think is far more fundamental. Um, you spoke there, Rebecca, um, a minute ago about the impact that we have as teachers and, and the impact that that impact can be positive and it can be negative. Um, and I've, I've spoken about happy, safe learners. And for me, the element of teaching that I would definitely put in Room 101 is anything that is against that. So any non-valuing of children, any judging of children that makes them feel not safe and not happy in their classroom does not belong in teaching and it should be in Room 101. Deborah, thank you so much because first of all, you're not wrong. I think that's a really, really wonderful response to give. And again, I think it's fundamental to why we as staff loved working for you and I think the fact that why so many people were actually listening to our interview this evening I think both of those things are really really important and knowing the fact again when we talked about the culture that Deborah was building in the school that we all worked in was one where students did feel valued they did feel happy they did feel safe and I think that that is something thing Really, really important. Somebody has commented, I wish you were the Ed Secretary here in the UK. I mean, Deborah, the comments that are getting some, you are getting some fantastic feedback throughout the show. Um, we've had another one. Um, somebody's listening in who is an ex-Latifa pupil because their inspirational teacher was Fran McCall, an ex-Latifa member of staff and have thanked you so much for the interview. So Deborah, I mean, people are absolutely coming in their droves to say thank you. I can't thank you enough for joining me tonight. This has been a pleasure and an honor. And I honestly cannot believe that it's taken this long to get you on here. And I wish you every success in your new role. The pleasure's mine, Rebecca. Thank you very much for the invitation. And so nice to wear my collar. Thank you. And I am just so sorry for all of the technical glitches that seem to have hit the show this evening. This has never happened before. But you will be able to download tonight's show. It will be a podcast. Please just cut out all the little moments where there have been technical glitches. Deborah Forsyth, thank you so much for being an incredible, inspirational, and this is very personal, but an incredible and inspirational head teacher, boss, friend. And to everybody that has listened, thank you so much for joining in. And Deborah, we wish you every success in your new role as CEO of BSME. And thank you to everybody who has listened to tonight's show. I'm going to have to wrap it up now because we are past time after all of these technical hitches. But thank you so much to everybody who has listened tonight.